Welcome to the Vacation Impossible podcast. Today is Friday, November 18th. I'm currently on the Carnival Breeze, somewhere between Jamaica and Galveston, Texas. And uh, Sam was going to join us, I had hoped, for this podcast, but he's decided to decline the offer. Uh, He sees himself as a bit more of a uh, photographer, uh, videographer, cameraman, than um, sort of... uh, you know, he, he says uh, he's not the face of Vacation Impossible. So, uh, anyways, that's that's fine. Uh, that's not a problem. Uh, unfortunately, that does mean that you're going to be getting another Raycast for this episode. We had hoped to record something in Portland, but uh, it was just so busy, Portland Retro Gaming Expo, that we just didn't have time. We went in 2015, and Pat Contry was the large draw for us, and that left us with a lot of time. We were able to go to the outlets and do some shopping. I got some shoes, that sort of thing. We, we seem to have a lot of time on our hands at Portland Retro Gaming Expo 2015. But at uh, Portland Retro Gaming Expo 2016, we had uh, not just Pat Contry, and of course Egan, Ian Ferguson was at both, um, but we had James Rolfe from Cinemassacre, the angry video game nerd. And just by adding that, it made it so much busier trying to catch his panels, his autograph signing, um, we just didn't have time to do a podcast or do uh, much in the way of shopping, honestly. So, um, you know, that's this not the worst thing for us because I was able to meet James Rolfe, and that was really cool. I was able to get my picture taken with him, get his autograph, that sort of thing. So, um, you know, Portland Retro Gaming Expo 2016 was fantastic, and we, we had a great time. But unfortunately, it was just too busy to do a podcast. Uh, I think we have a lot of topics that I was going to cover then. Um, just one little bit of business before I get into that and new topics is uh, the last cruise, uh, last time you had a Raycast, basically. Uh, you know, I, I had said that there was, um, you know, some things that were going on that sort of uh, seemed like it wasn't conducive to a very good podcast recording. And so I had done just the brief one with myself that ran, I think, like less than half an hour. Uh, a little background on one of the things that was going on is that a member of our group had brought along a very expensive piece of jewelry and that piece of jewelry had gone missing and carnival had done a very good job of turning their room upside down backwards and forwards looking for this piece of jewelry and unfortunately they deemed it unrecoverable they said that it couldn't be found and so that along with um one of uh, some of our group had gotten some misleading information from the carnival excursion desk and there was a I think a Mayan ruin excursion they were going to go on and they asked what are the the ruins what are they like and so they had been described as very very large when in fact they were like a single story apparently so it just didn't seem like a very good time to be doing a podcast given that there were uh, different things going on uh, also uh, my group had some issues with um, the Cloud9 Spa which is apparently not actually part of Carnival despite operating on their ships and using Carnival branding and uniforms. So with those three issues all happening at the same time, I was really kind of concerned about um, the podcast would just be a big bitch session, basically. So uh, that's why I decided to go the way I did. So just as a follow-up, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the experience on the Carnival Dream. Um, Specifically, I mentioned how Uh, an expensive piece of jewelry was deemed to be irretrievable by Carnival Security, despite them doing a very thorough search of the person's cabin, and as well as a a, a cursory search of the cabins of the other people they were traveling with. So, uh, it was deemed to be unretrievable, 
so they gave the bad news and we followed up and nothing could be done for a period of time and so uh, you know the trip ended we went home and eventually we were contacted by Carnival and they did in fact find the jewelry in question and sent it back so there is a happy uh, ending to that particular story uh, so I just wanted to mention that and kudos to the Carnival Dream their security team and the Carnival organization for um, not giving up, even after they deemed it irretrievable. Um, I think that that was, uh, we were very fortunate that that was the outcome, that it was very positive. But, um, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of institutions, I think, just, you know, wouldn't necessarily have kept the file open and, and had that level of diligence. Um, but it really was uh, really nice of them. And so uh, there's a happy ending to that component of the story. And uh, in terms of the spa situation, I did contact Carnival afterwards. And despite the fact that they're separate companies, Carnival made an effort to make it right. They followed up through uh, through email, and so uh, they did offer some sincere apologies, and uh, so I appreciate that. I do feel that the spa, in the way that it behaves, and its arm's length structure from the Carnival organization does do damage to Carnival's brand, but at least in that instance, Carnival was do willing to go the extra mile to make it right, and so that was, uh, that was good. Um, and uh, another thing about the Carnival Dream is we had a cove balcony for that one. And so what is a cove balcony? Because we didn't know prior to booking it. I mean, a balcony sounds fantastic, whatever kind it is. Obstructed, extended, normal cove. Uh, I just love the idea of being able to look out at the ocean and have my own little private area where I don't have to listen to the Lido music necessarily or, you know, crowded people, people smoking, whatever. Uh, and so the Cove Balcony specifically is a balcony that is what you can see outside is like a rounded rectangle. And so the corners of the balcony, um, there's going to be metal that's going to be sort of blocking that, that little part of your view. But the interesting thing is when we were in a Cove Balcony on the Dream, the balcony seemed to extend a little further out. We had a little bit more leg room than this regular balcony that we have right now on the Carnival Breeze here in room 7447. So while it obstructs your view a little bit, personally my feeling on the Dream Class is that the Cove balcony might be slightly superior to a regular balcony. One thing I will say about this room that we're in uh, on the Breeze, this regular balcony on deck 7, it is the room more than any other cruise uh, stateroom I've been on that looks like the picture. When you go and you look at the floor plan and the pictures, this one fits it to a T. They could have done the photo shoot in here. So uh, that's that's nice. It looks nice. It's, it's fairly spacious, all things considered. Um, but I think that extended balcony is obviously the best of the balconies we've done. But I think a cove balcony, I would prefer slightly over a regular balcony because you, I think you get a little bit more leg room, so it's a bit more comfortable. Even if some of the view is obscured, I'll take comfort over the view to that degree because on this regular balcony, I have to angle myself at like a 45 degree angle to be able to put my legs up. And so that's just, uh, that's just that. So that's what a cove balcony is. Uh, and I think cove balconies are generally lower on the ship, but that you can tell just by the booking. And just generally um, sort of a review of the Carnival Breeze, I think that the ship has held up very well. She was constructed in 2012, and we sailed on her in December of 2013. And she was very new then, and I don't see a whole lot of wear and tear over the intervening years. The carpet's slightly more worn. There might be a little dust in some corners that you'd never look in. 
unless maybe you're doing the seven minute workout in your cabin, which I do, um, as a way of, you know, staying relatively fit while I travel. So I think it's held up very well. Uh, we miss Butch. Butch was a fantastic cruise director, but Mike Pack, the cruise director on this trip is hilarious. Um, and so he puts on a heck of a show. Uh, the the atrium, the the trivia games he does in the atrium is fantastic. We went to the '90s music trivia last night. I got every question right and didn't win a prize. I hundred percented that thing, but because for him it's all about looking silly, having fun, dancing, things like that. The prizes were given out for those sorts of things, uh, not for getting the questions right. <laughs> um, but that's all right because we went to a Facebook group meetup, which I've never done before, and I was a little—I don't know—a little hesitant. Um, I'm not entirely certain why, but uh, you know, Sam wanted to go. He RSVP'd, so I tagged along, and it was actually a lot of fun. Uh, this was run by a lady named Teresa Smoot who ran the Facebook group and her husband. And so they did a carnival-based trivia that I came in second at. Uh, so I got a, a bottle of sparkling wine, which we'll probably be getting into later today, uh, as a prize. And it was great. It was uh, questions about carnival. their ships, different things. Like one thing I learned was apparently, I believe, the carnival paradise, when it first launched, was meant to be a completely non-smoking vessel. Unfortunately, that didn't work. Um... But uh, I'm hoping that maybe they can return to that one day because I love a balcony, but when I pay extra for a balcony and people are smoking on their balconies and it's disgusting, um, I paid extra to avoid that. That's what I was trying to get away from by having a balcony. So that's kind of frustrating. Uh, thankfully, it hasn't been all the time, uh, but it has happened enough that it's, it's pretty irritating. So um, people who smoke on your balconies, I can't stand you. Just stop, please really like no apologies i just i just hate you doing that it's horrible there's no reason for it um i don't know why you subject other people to that just uh some topics that were going to be covered in portland that we didn't have time for uh sort of the review of portland retro gaming expo 2016 and i found it to be pretty fantastic i had a lot of fun it was great seeing pat and ian again and meeting james rolf and watching his panel one thing that's occurred to me over the last two retro gaming expos in portland that i've been to is it's interesting when the the very famous sort of youtubers have their panels and a big part of that is them showing a new video and you know mindy brought this up uh last year when Pat asked, oh, do you want to see the new video or do you want to do a Q&A? Do you want to do play the punk challenge? All the different options. And everyone, including myself, very excited to see the new video. But is that the best use of our time? Because we've got this person who's traveled this way and they're making themselves available in front of us and with this great group and everything. And we're all just going to sit there and watch a video together. And I get that it's trying to, I think, capture the Comic-Con feel of when Marvel goes up there and they put out a new trailer or, you know, Disney puts out their new Star Wars trailer or something to that exclusive Comic-Con thing. And that's, that's a big part of that. And maybe they're trying to feel like they're recreating that. But this is content that's going to be available online in a, in a couple of days. Or in the case, case of James Rolfe, it was outtakes that I think were included in one of his DVDs. So I wonder if that's really... The, the best use of the time, maybe more Q&A. Um, the Play the Punk Challenge, both in 2015 and 2016 at Portland Retro Gaming Expo, was Pat getting two people to play each other. That's a bit of a misnomer. If it's Play the Punk Challenge, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's, it, punctuation's important. If it's Play the Punk Challenge, then it's kind of a misnomer. But if it's Play the Punk Challenge, okay. 
So it, the first one, if the break is after punk, you would think you're playing against Pat the NES Punk. But if it's you know if it's the punk challenge that you are playing, then okay maybe you're challenging other people. Um, and it's fun. He does great color commentary and stuff. I just uh, I just wonder if those sorts of things are the best use of having the, these uh, these you know these celebrities valuable time available. Um, and so I don't know. That's something to think about. If you have any thoughts on on what would make those sorts of panels better, I'd be curious to hear them. Uh, you know, email us team at vacationimpossible.ca. Contact us at Twitter at vacayimpossible, or if you're seeing this on YouTube, just comment below. So the expo was great. It felt like the retrocade wasn't as big as last year, but I'm not really sure. I didn't spend a lot of time in the retrocade. I bought quite a few games this time. I think a lot more than I did last time. And the thing is, I buy retro video games to play them. So I don't want it in a box if it's a Nintendo game, uh, if it's an NES or something, or Super Nintendo, because that box is going to sit on a shelf and eat up space, and I'm not going to be the person to appreciate it. I'm not, I don't hugely value how it looks on a shelf. I'm not that kind of a collector. I collect it to play it, but I want to play it in the original format. That's why I don't have a, you know, um, a retro USB, EverDrive, whatever. That's what I go looking for, and I've gotten to the point where I've made a lot of progress on my wish list that I had created just a couple years ago that... The stuff that remains, some things are really expensive, some things are really cheap. They're not, I don't know, after this one, not so exciting. Because I've got the stuff I was really, really excited about for the most part. I mean, yeah, I'd like to play a Snow Brothers. Uh, I rented it when I was a kid, and it was a lot of fun. It's not worth $250 to me to be able to do that. I understand why the game, you know, goes for that. Uh, but for me, I, you know, it would have to come down drastically. We'd have to have a very serious retro gaming price collapse before, uh, you know, I go out and get a Snow Brothers unless I see it at a garage sale for a ridiculously low amount, which is, of course, the dream, but, you know, it doesn't happen very often. I found the vendors were really good. I saw a lot of copies of very rare games. I must have seen, like, three little Samsons at a single vendor. And so I'm, I'm thinking that's just for show. That gets people over to look, and then they buy the other things that's more reasonably priced. But it's interesting because Pat and Ian have talked about how they see a lot of these quote-unquote super rare games showing up in multitudes at conventions and so I saw that myself uh, happening and so also I think there's a general understanding that for retro games conventions are not the most cost-effective place to go I believe the Portland Retro Gaming Expo is the exception to that um, and to a lesser extent one or two of the vendors at the Vancouver Retro Gaming Expo you can get good deals at too so this assumption that you know convention prices are really inflated I think that goes for other conventions but the particularly Portland and to a lesser extent Vancouver, doesn't seem to be the case. I think you can still get some really good deals, and um, I think some prices are coming down. I had um, some misfortune at 2015 Portland Retro Gaming Expo, where I bought what I thought was a Russian attack, and I take it home and I clean the cartridge, and I put it in, and it's Commando. And Commando sucks. <laughs> uh, and so I was able to play a little Commando so I could see, like, oh, you know, oh, yeah, this is the bad game that the reviewers say is so bad, but that's not really what I'm shopping for. So that, and so now I have this cart. And what do I do with it? And so, anyways, I paid $5 for that. And so, you know, I'm, I'm Charlie Brown kicking the, trying to kick the, the football again. I, I buy another Russian attack, this time again at Portland Retro Gaming Expo. I haven't yet had a chance to clean and play it, um, but I paid. I think it was three fifty or four dollars for it this time. So, uh, you know, and when I got the five dollar one last year, I didn't see it for a better price anywhere else. It was five dollars consistently. Now, as someone I know, uh, Jeff had suggested a possible reason as to why that cart that I am now stuck with exists, and he used to go and buy his retro games from a pawn shop. 
and the pawn shop as a courtesy, as a good service, would open up every NES cart, even when they weren't as valuable as they are today, and clean all the contacts and show them the board. And they would do that with the $5 games. And so it's entirely possible that when they did that, they, they took it apart. Maybe they were doing a lot. Maybe they were doing a couple, and they accidentally put the Russian attack top on the base of a commando and vice versa. So possibly somewhere out there in the world is a commando that is actually Russian attack. So, okay, that would be one way that makes more sense, because they're both five, four or $5 games. There's no advantage to faking one for the other. There's no profit there. So why would somebody do that? That's a new possible explanation, a new narrative, uh, that it was sort of an accident by a very well-meaning uh, person. That's possible. I'm still stuck with this cart and don't know what to do. So, you know, send in your suggestions for what you think we should do with the cart. Maybe we should blow it up on YouTube or something. I don't know. But at the same time, I don't know that I want to take a cart, even that messed up version, out of circulation, because they're not making any more of these things. I don't know. But anyways, Portland Retro Gaming Expo, very fun time. It's my second year going. I really enjoyed it, and I highly recommend it. I'm not entirely certain I'll be as motivated to go back next year. We'll see what happens. As I recently wrote about on our Tumblr blog, I've been thinking about trying to shift us towards a little bit more of a Canadian focus. I think that there is a lot of uh, coverage of sort of the American story with regards to travel and that sort of thing. And we are a Canadian organization. It's vacationimpossible.ca. So I'm thinking maybe trying to get in a bit more of a uniquely Canadian perspective uh, would be a good idea because I think that might be an underserved voice that we could uh, do a little bit more to give that perspective. So I'm hoping that, uh, you know, we're still looking at sailing to Hawaii out of Vancouver next year, and I'm hoping that we can go to Victoria, um, get John on the podcast, hopefully, so we have fewer Raycasts, and I think that that would be uh, a good, sort of a different, a different take on things that we can show people. So trying to shift things a little bit more Canadian, and so we'll see how that goes. So we'll probably continue going to Vancouver Retro Gaming Expo, but Portland... I don't know. We'll have to see. And we might be scaling back our cruises. This, for me, is cruise number five of the year. I have one more coming. That's six cruises in one year. I'm going to be making platinum with the Carnival uh, Loyalty Program on the next cruise. So that was my New Year's resolution. Very excited about getting that done. So now that I have it, I've always said from the very beginning, once I get platinum, once I get that free laundry and early tendering and early boarding and all that kind of stuff, I was going to look at taking fewer but longer cruises. So are we talking eight days to Alaska, 10, 11 days to Hawaii, things of that nature, maybe fewer of these four days to Ensenada, five days to Cozumel sort of trips. That is what I think we'll be shifting towards is fewer but longer cruises and more Canadian content. So again, uh, reach out to us, let us know what you think about that shift. Is that something you're excited about? Do you think we're headed in the wrong direction? Uh, we're very curious to hear about that. Just a topic that we were going to talk about for Portland Retro Gaming Expo is a favorite retro game. And so for me right now, uh, and I think this has been true for a very long time, my favorite retro game is Final Fantasy, which was known as Final Fantasy II in North America on the Super Nintendo, um, which was actually 4 in Japan, and so has since become known as 4. Uh, and this is the one with, you know, Cecil, Kane, Rosa, Rydia, those people. And for me, that is the best uh, role-playing game of all time, probably the best retro game, possibly the best video game of all time. I've played a lot of Birth of the Federation. I have it running up on my uh, Surface 3, which is pretty funny. For a, a, a 4X uh, turn-based game from 1999, I have running on my Surface 3, which is kind of a fun thing. 
But um, as much as I've probably spent more time playing that, I think the Final Fantasy 2 slash 4, that is, uh, that is the game to beat for me for retro gaming. So another topic we were going to cover is what is your favorite modern game? So I suppose I should focus on the two modern systems I own. I have the Wii U and the 3DS. Those are the two most recent in those lines. Although we do have um, the, the NX, now called the Switch, coming soon. For the 3DS, uh, Bravely Default, Bravely Second, that series is absolutely fantastic. I also think Link Between Worlds is pretty much as close as you can get to a perfect game as possible. But for me, it's probably the Bravely Default, Bravely Second. Uh, and again, that gets back to that Final Fantasy 2 slash 4 days of that kind of a, a really fun uh, gameplay. And it's great for, for playing it on the go, because if you want to do some grinding, uh, or if you're even working your way through a dungeon or something where you're not going to be triggering a lot of dialogue or complex boss battles for a bit, you can do that on your 20-minute commute to and from work every day. And, uh, and then sort of queue it up for maybe that big boss battle when you have more time to focus on it. And that, you know, with, with the voice acting and the boss battles, that might be more appropriate for when you're at home. But that way you don't have to take up TV. If somebody else is using the TV, you can take your 3DS into another room and still have a really good gameplay experience. And for the Wii U, I think that Mario Kart 8 is uh, also very close to a perfect game. But I think that I would probably, for now, have to give it to Hyrule Warriors. I don't know if this is a fad or not, but I started playing it. Uh, I saw a demo in a store, and I bought it right away. It sat on a shelf for months, and I finally put it in. And uh, it was actually a funny story. I was taking a subway somewhere. I think I was getting my passport renewed. And I overheard some... Uh, geez, I don't know, they must have been 20-somethings. They were dressed like they were going to a photo shoot, like they were models or something, and they were talking about Hyrule Warriors. And that just the juxtaposition seemed kind of surprising to me. I wasn't expecting a group that you know was dressed like that, looked like that, to be talking about that subject. And that reminded me, oh, I've got this game I haven't tried out yet. And so once I started playing it, and I kept going back to it, keep going back to it, um, and so working towards 100%ing it. I don't think 100% is going to be likely because some of the challenges are very hard. But I've obviously completed the game. I've done easy, normal, hard. I'm working hero. I'm halfway through on hero for the main storyline, and I'm working on the uh, the adventure map and other stuff. But it is uh, it has tons of replay value. It's a lot of fun. Hyrule Warriors, I would recommend, with uh, probably the runner-up being Mario Kart 8. Mario Kart 8 is just... Um, nearly a perfect game. The Nintendo Switch is coming, uh, formerly called the NX. And that's It's interesting. I'm not quite sure what to make of it. Uh, I, I will be getting one. I, you know, I'm a bit of a Nintendo fanboy, you know, so I've got all the Nintendo systems, or at least the capability of playing every game. I didn't keep my GameCube, because uh, there was somebody who was, you know, uh, their, theirs had broken down in some manner, and they were in a needy situation, so I was happy to give them mine, partly because the Wii has backwards compatibility and can play GameCube games. So I have the ability to play everything, so I'll be getting the Switch. It's interesting watching the video. Pat Contry humorously remarked that it was sort of like Logan's run where, you know, there was no one over 30 or under 20 in the video, which I, I think is funny, um, which is probably just a style choice. I wouldn't read too much into it. I don't think that they're trying to tell us something about their intentions for the system. I think that it's, uh, uh, it's an interesting idea. If you can get serious multiplayer, serious local multiplayer going. I think that could be very exciting. One thing that I was disappointed in with the Wii U is that you couldn't buy additional game pads because the idea of having a variety of people in the same room all looking at the same screen doing a Mario Kart or a Splatoon or something of that nature, uh, maybe even a Smash Brothers because when you get like so many players on that screen it can get very hard to follow. Maybe you could have 
you know, your screen that just follows your character around on the small screen, and then the big screen has the full thing, and you could follow the action that way. Splatoon, or like a GoldenEye-type game, you could have the map up there, and then your individual first-person perspective on the tablet. Mario Kart, same idea. Uh, so those sorts of things. Uh, and so I thought that was a missed opportunity with Nintendo, with the Wii U, which I didn't quite get because you could sell those tablets for 120 bucks each or something as a very expensive add-on, but I think people would pay. And I think it would have increased the, the interest and livelihood and the potential of the system. It would have lasted longer and had more market penetration. So it looks like the Switch is kind of dealing with that, which is great. My one concern is uh, portability. Uh, the tablet that you take with you seems I mean, it's certainly... I, I still have the original 3DS, and I've nearly destroyed the D-pad on this thing. I've played it so much. And so if I want the new Nintendo 3DS, then they only have that in XL in North America, so I need to get the larger one. And playing on the smaller one, it does... It hurts my thumbs a little bit. My hands get into a bit of a, a, a crank or whatever. But it's portable. And so it's so small and so portable, and I got that Club Nintendo Mario case for it, that I like how portable it is. Going to something larger makes it less portable. It's a little less easy to just kind of take out and whatever. So uh, this tablet is going to be a step further in that direction of being less and less portable. Um, and, I mean, you've heard me rant about it before. My phone is absolutely enormous. And, of course, I went and got the phone that gets bigger. <laughs> so um, this is the BlackBerry Priv, and... You know, it's nice, it's great, I like it, but I do kind of miss the more portable... Uh, I used to have the Torch and I had the Q10. Those were smaller, more portable. This feels less portable. Um, it's so large and flat in your pocket. Um, you feel like if you sit on it the wrong way. Uh, we were in port in, I think it was Cozumel, and I had sat down, and unbeknownst to me, I had put enough pressure on the power button that I restarted the phone. And with the Android operating system, that restart takes quite a while. This isn't like the days of BlackBerry 6, where it would boot up pretty quickly. Uh, and so that was inconvenient. And then it messed up the time, because it wasn't syncing to the network, because I was in Mexico, those sorts of things. So I see the... the um, the this, this Switch possibly going further in that direction. And so I wonder if they're going to be damaging their portable market penetration because it might not be as portable. Uh, but time will tell. And given how Nintendo's been announcing that, oh, these things will be running concurrently and things like that, I think that does give them the opportunity to sort of retcon the situation and go back and say, you know what, this was never fully portable. Portable was like a feature of this home console. We're still going to keep doing 3DSs, and the new one's going to be the, called something else, and it'll be truly, you know, that portable device, which sells incredibly well and has for a long time. I could very easily see that being how things go, and I think they're going to be watching those, those um, you know, the early sales, uh, you know... Um, and, and tracking the market penetration and seeing if that gets the job done uh, and going from there. But I'm excited for it. I think there's a lot of potential of better multiplayer uh, experience that I, that I thought the Wii U would bring. So I'm, I'm definitely excited for that. That's sort of the bulk of the Portland topics that we had figured on talking about. We're really excited that we now have someone writing original music for the channel. Uh, his name is Cam, and what he's been writing has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, and so that's very exciting. We don't have to deal with content ID matches on our videos, copyright issues, things like that, which... It was just the fact that I don't know how to compose music. I don't. That's not a skill of mine. I needed a Kyle Justin-like person to be able to write music for us. And so now, um, 
you know, it was on, uh, by chance that I was watching Star Trek Beyond with a couple friends. We went up to Boston Pizza afterwards, and uh, I was talking about, you know, content ID matches and how I wish I had a theme song and, uh, you know, uh, music that we had the rights to. And my friend says that he, to relax, writes music all the time. And so this is something that Cam does as a hobby, and he wasn't really finding an audience for it, and he thought it was just this kind of silly thing you do in your basement sort of thing. Um, and so I was very excited, and so we've begun this sort of collaboration, and uh, the stuff he's been producing is fantastic. Some of some of his music, it's catchy, it's stuff that I, that I find myself humming, um, you know, days later. This is really exciting and really want to thank Cam for his contribution. Welcome him to the team. We used his uh, his image in the Vacation Impossible uh, um, commercial uh, as Alexander Galitzin uh, from the uh, Vacation Impossible teaser. So uh, it's nice to actually have him uh, contributing that way and hopefully we can get him uh, maybe traveling with us as a guest on the podcast in the future. I think that would be uh, pretty fantastic. Uh, one thing I did recently trying to uh, promote the channel is uh, Hootsuite offers online social media marketing training program um, that you can take for free. If you want, you can take a test at the end for, I think, 100 or $200 to get certified, which I don't necessarily need. I found it very useful for some areas. I found its YouTube section was very, very shallow, but it's very focused on a business trying to promote itself, which is not what we are by any means. So the YouTube part I found very, very basic, but other things like um, when to post on Facebook and Twitter and, uh, you know, sort of the, the features of Instagram to use tagging uh, people and hashtags and locations effectively. I found very interesting. So uh, if you're looking to sort of bolster your social media acumen, I recommend the Hootsuite uh, free program. Um, I, I think it gives you some useful insights on understanding the different, you know, um, audiences for each social media thing. I got something called the All Powers Solar Charger. We got this off of Amazon. Uh, it's made in China. So, I mean, if we're talking about ethically powering your devices, I'm not sure about the construction of this, but once you have it, it could be an ethical way of uh, powering your devices with the solar panel here. It's got an LED light and uh, two charging ports. One is faster than the other um, because one is one amp, the other is 2.1 amp. So the 2.1 amp obviously charges faster. And this is capable of being charged externally um, like any sort of uh, micro USB connection. So I've been using it off and on since late September. And I find that as a battery pack, it's fantastic. It um, charges quickly from the wall, and it will charge your devices quickly and charge two of them. Uh, and it holds a pretty good charge uh, very well. So that functionality, very good. The solar panel, however, is the part that we've really that I really wanted this for. I'm not entirely sure that it's very effective at building a charge. We haven't really tested it in a lot of our, uh, situations. We brought it on this trip. So, um, you know, there's a little indicator that shows you that it's charging, but it's not really clear. The instructions are not in very good English, and it's not very clear what degree of charge it has and what charge it's going to. So if I had uh, some feedback other than maybe making the solar panel more efficient, and there have been a lot of uh, breakthroughs technology-wise there, um, is a better indicator of how much power this has stored on it, uh, not just when it's charging. Four indicator lights, I think that there could be, uh, if it's not charging very rapidly, then I think a, a greater scale would be useful. Uh, you know, one to 10 or something like that would be good. Uh, so if you're looking for a you know, secondary battery, it does actually, in the instructions, say the solar panel is only to be used in an emergency 
which if you're buying something called the All Power Solar Charger, the solar feature just being for use in an emergency, that um, that doesn't seem quite right. So um, if you're looking for a battery, this is a little big, I will grant you. There's a lot smaller batteries out there. So if all you want is a battery, this might not be the thing for you. But uh, we just really wanted to try this out because this could be an important travel technology. Um, I was constantly joking about like uh, the Triumph lost power a few years ago. And so I was joking, if I had a solar charger, I'd be charging people five, $5 a minute to charge their device off of my solar charger. Um, but, you know, it's good to be prepared for situations, especially now that things when you travel are so dependent on your phone. You have, you know, your boarding pass, your train ticket, your pass to an event um, could all be on your phone. You have your itinerary, uh, you know, if you're using Uber to get around, your phone is really dependent on all that. But with these giant screens, um, the battery life isn't quite as great. Like my Q10 would go three days without a charge. This can't do half of that. And so I, I, I enjoy my Priv, but uh, the battery power is nothing compared to the Q10 in terms of its, uh, it, how long it lasts. And it can do a lot more, admittedly. I couldn't hail an Uber on my Q10, uh, but I can with the Priv. And in fact, I did call my very first Uber. I've taken Uber with Sam and Mindy before, but this was my first time hailing an Uber myself. So I was at um, the George Bush International Airport, and I needed to get to a hotel, and it was a little too late for the airport shuttle, so I needed another way of getting around. And so I, I turned on my, my data, which I like to play the hunt for Wi-Fi game. So turning on your, your, your mobile data is like giving up at the game. But I'm like, okay, I, you know, I, I did the math. And taking the Uber versus a taxi saved me about $11. And it incurred me about $0.70 cents in roaming charges, both from the phone calls and the data. And I think I was, I was, I, I reconfirmed the address of the hotel. So that, that estimate of the data cost is probably on the high side. So I easily cleared $10 in savings. There was some miscommunication between me and the driver, but it had no impact on you know, where we were going. Um, you know, he was just trying to point out that some roads had been closed and I didn't quite understand what he was trying to say, but you know, it didn't, it didn't slow down the process anyway. It didn't cost me anything. So my first Uber experience wasn't totally smooth. One thing I noticed is you hail somebody with an Uber and I've noticed this with Mindy and, and, and with Sam as well is, you know, you, you ask for the ride in the app and the app as I understand it, communicates who you are, your phone number, where you are, and where you want to go to the other person. Invariably, without fail, every time I've been in an Uber with someone, the first thing that happens after you hail that ride is they call you, they ask where you are, at minimum, uh, and just like confirm it, which the app gives you this information. It seems redundant. I don't know why people need to have this phone call. And the guy that phoned me, it was more than that. He clarified my name, his name, where I was, twice where I was, and also he needed the address of where I was going. I was, I'm pretty confident that the Uber app communicates that. So why he needed to hear it again, I don't get. Uh, so I think that obviously... You know, it, it's still somewhat new technology. It's my first time using it. So I think people are still probably figuring out how to use it very effectively. I just don't see the necessity of that phone call. If you're having trouble finding the person, um, that's fine. You know, if there's a glitch, if there's some issue, if you're running late, you want to let them know. That's all fair. But to reconfirm information that the app should already provide seems like a waste of a phone call. And that's just bad business because the person receiving the call is probably possibly roaming. The person making the call is probably calling long distance. So these are expenses that you don't need to incur. 
and that's cutting into your bottom line, I would think, because you, you know you're incurring cost of gas and your time wear and tear on your car. You know that all cuts down on the money you make out of being a driver. I am no expert because I come from the one city in all of North America that does not have Uber, which is Vancouver, uh, and the province of British Columbia in Canada on the west coast does not yet allow Uber. I'm playing in uh, an unfamiliar field here. But that's just sort of my take on it. One thing that was disappointing is Lyft I had a credit with, but Lyft was not available at the Houston International Airport. So market penetration and availability, Uber definitely has the advantage. One thing I was just going to sort of follow up on is this whole Ghostbusters thing. Uh, I know it's back again, but there was an interesting story that... Um, one of the people who uh, was a self-proclaimed feminist who was attacking James Rolfe for his non-review um, for some media website. I won't mention his name or the website because I don't want to draw traffic to this sort of behavior, um, but apparently has had sexual harassment um, um, accusations brought against him. And so he was dropped by the website. And I understand that the, the charge against James Rolfe began with a tweet from Patton Oswalt that was sort of sarcastic, saying, oh, he loves slobbering anger or something. And Patton Oswalt later, you know, said that he picked the wrong target. And so, yeah, sure, there are people out there that were sort of sexist about it. Um, James Rolfe wasn't one of them. But it's interesting how people were attacking James Rolfe's wife for choosing to marry him and all of this kind of nonsense because he wouldn't see a movie. And so one of the reasons I mention this is that one of the local papers in Vancouver had actually referred to him, but not by name and not by his channel, because they didn't want to give traffic to him, but they were completely misrepresenting his views. And I have some problems when the media would do that, because you are calling someone out through inference and without being specific. So, I mean, that could have equally applied to me. Uh, you know, I refuse to review it because I don't want to see it. Um, so, you know, and, and so fact-checking and that sort of thing. Like, why report on this on a rumor, basically, uh, is what it is. When you don't provide the specifics of the facts, it's not, um, it's not really reporting. It's, it's, I don't know, gossip or something. But um, when I met James Rolfe in Portland, uh, I actually mentioned it to him. Uh, because I just I just thought it was remarkable and not at all in a positive way that the local paper in Vancouver was writing about you know his non-review. Uh, he thought that that was pretty weird. Around the same time, uh, a lot of good movies were coming out, and so I went on this blitz where I went and I watched every movie but that, wearing my Cinemassacre T-shirt, uh, just as a as a I don't know. Uh, it, protest, whatever you want to call it, but well, I had a lot of fun, you know, got to see Independence Day 2, uh, Now You See Me 2, uh, X-Men Apocalypse, um, the BFG, a bunch of just tons of movies that we were able to uh, have a lot of fun doing, and so that was just fun in its own, uh, and I think that's the thing, like if you want to rile against something, find a fun way to do it, uh, because then, you know, if it doesn't work or whatever, at least you had some fun. Uh, and that sort of thing. And so that was that was really quite enjoyable. So I, I like to think that out of that negative, you know, rage culture backlash that, that attacked a random innocent person, um, you know, some positive stuff for, for me and my friends and family because we were, you know, it motivated us to go see what else was out there. And so like Star Trek Beyond was one of those films that I was seeing. That goddess Cam, our, our composer, that's sort of what's been going on. Uh, we went to a new port in Jamaica, Montego Bay, that we'd never been to before. And it doesn't have much to do at the port. So I think that there's a, um, 
certain ports where it's either an excursion or pretty much stay on the ship. Freeport, Montego Bay. I would include Nassau just because the area around the port is is kind of problematic. Ocho Rios, also in Jamaica, I would probably include in that as well. There's some ports you can go to, you can get off and you can just walk around and see and do some interesting things. You can do that in Cozumel, Catalina Island, Ensenada. There's a lot of places where you can walk around and have a pretty good time. Grand Turk, that is what you do. Uh, I, I think getting an excursion in Grand Turk would be a little silly. You go and you run into a floaty and you hit the beach and it's, it's all right there. I, I do think that there are certain uh, ports where you know, there's there's not necessarily a lot to do right by the port, and that's where you really want to book an excursion. But check the weather forecast. Booking early might not be the smartest thing when it comes to excursions. That's definitely a good piece of advice. There were thunderstorms that were predicted for Montego Bay, which is why we didn't book an excursion. Uh, otherwise, we definitely would have. So we actually ended up not doing any excursions on this trip. I think um, so far I've bought one soda and my Christmas ornament, and that's it. It's been pretty cost-effective trying to, you know, eat a little healthier, that sort of thing. Follow Sam's good example because he's taking his health pretty seriously, exercising and working out and all that. We have the four-day sale on the Imagination coming up in December, so I'll probably be um, doing another podcast then with Mindy and also the big Hawaii trip from Vancouver to Hawaii in September of next year. Hopefully we can get John and some other people. And, uh, yeah, like I said, I'm hoping that we can have... Uh, John on the podcast, maybe we'll go visit him in Victoria, go up to Parksville, do some mini golf, bumper boats, something like that, and just try to shift things to uh, that Canadian perspective that I was talking about. So hopefully this uh, Raycast uh, hasn't been too boring. We hope to get a couple of different voices next time, at least two, uh, myself and Mindy. So stay tuned for that. Um, Otherwise, uh, make sure that you uh, follow us on all of our various social media endeavors uh, because you'll find different content everywhere. Um, so we're on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash vacationimpossible. We're on Twitter at vacayimpossible. We're on Instagram as vacationimpossible. And we have our Tumblr, which is vacationimpossible.tumblr.com, I believe. And uh, you can find this podcast on Podbean vacationimpossible.podbean.com we're also on iTunes and Stitcher and hopefully picked up on other available sources as well so thanks for tuning in this has been the Vacation Impossible podcast otherwise known as the Raycast and we will see you next time thanks for listening